Good day, friends. My name is Dan George, and I am your host of Reconciliation Road, an exciting new podcast I've started with the support of the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. The focus of our program is reconciliation in all its forms. Reconciliation has no meaning if it is not aimed at achieving equality in life expectancy, education, employment, and all the important measurable areas of disadvantage. We cannot think of Canada as reconciled when some continue to experience racism, and when there continues to be such profound disparity between First Nations people and the wider community. Reconciliation is about creating equity and equality, closing this gap and building relationships to do this. We well know that leadership matters, particularly when it comes to reconciliation. It is essential in every sector, in every community, and in every country. In these times of unprecedented change, organizations, communities, and governments need more leaders And now more than ever, we need leaders who can unite and mobilize others in a common cause. In our BC healthcare system, we have the Office of the Provincial Health Officer, a team that is tasked with overseeing the health of British Columbians and advising on public health concerns and situations to our ministers and public bodies. Be kind, be calm, be safe is something the Office of the Provincial Health Officer is also known for now, words many British Columbians became familiar with during the pandemic words that still ring true today. This sentiment comes from our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry and her team, a sort of slogan now for many people across our province. Today, we are so very grateful to have both Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC provincial health officer, and Dr. Danielle Bain-Smith, deputy provincial health officer, indigenous health with us, two pivotal figures in the health and wellness of citizens in BC today, And it's not lost on me that these two pivotal figures are women. They have worked tirelessly through the pandemic, devoting themselves to protecting the citizens of BC and are monumental in the efforts to improve access to equal health care and wellness for Indigenous communities. Our province is at a turning point in how we address racism and colonial views intertwined with with our health care system. And Dr. Bonnie Henry and Dr. Bain Smith are both playing important roles in this shift and how the future of equal access to healthcare and community wellness will look for Indigenous peoples in British Columbia moving forward. Uh, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't begin by uh, acknowledging and raising my hands in respect and admiration to each of you for the work that you've done uh, on behalf of uh, British Columbians and Canadians. Um, And I'm not surprised uh, that it's uh, women uh, that are leading uh, this charge. I wanna raise my hands in respect to you and uh, just to amplify uh, all of your skills and abilities that have been on display uh, for all of us for uh, for months and months and months now. So thank you very much. Um, your office has uh, spoken to the disproportionate discrimination Indigenous peoples face in BC's healthcare system and how the pandemic has highlighted this. Uh, Dr. Henry, can you speak to how your partnership with Dr. Bain Smith has benefited the province's work in connecting with Indigenous communities and to address the stigmatization and barriers experienced by Indigenous people in accessing equal health care in BC. So what what ideas do you have there, Dr. Henry? You know, just uh, from the very beginning, and so Danielle, uh, I'm very grateful, has been part of our office uh, for, I want to say, five years now. Um, And so we've been on this journey together prior to this pandemic. And uh, I also want to acknowledge uh, that uh, we have a very strong relationship between our office and the First Nations Health Authority 
and Métis Nation BC that we've cultivated through the leadership of Dr. Lane Smith uh, as well. And it, that has meant that as we met, went into this pandemic, we were all very aware that pandemics historically have always differentially affected uh, First Nations people, Métis people, Inuit people, and that we needed to take that into account in everything that we did in responding to this pandemic. And that is something that I've learned that, uh, you know, we need to, um, we need to privilege the, the knowledge. And uh, it was uh, um, Elder uh, Pauline Waterfall who said, you know, we talk about unprecedented, mm -hmm. but for First Nations people, this is not unprecedented. It is indeed precedented. And those words really stuck with me. And she talked about how in uh, every pandemic in recorded history, First Nations people have uh, shown, uh, have been differentially negatively affected, but have also shown their resilience and strength and knowledge and wisdom and that we needed to use that uh, to, to work together through this. So those are things that have underpinned uh, our work, particularly um, during the pandemic. And there's been many, many examples where we have, and we've done this early on. One of the simple things that, um, that I did after we declared a public health emergency was compel the linking of data. And that sounds like a very simple thing, but data on, on who is being infected, um, what the outcomes are, how people are being uh, treated, are they able to access care? All of those things are important things to help us know where to put resources. And so we kind of linked our case information about who is getting sick with COVID with uh, the First Nations client file, which is um, an imperfect tool, but it is a tool that we have and one of the only tools that we have that allows us to collect disaggregated uh, information and, uh, by First Nations status. So, um, and that information was compelled by the, the traditional legal framework that, that we work under, but we gave it, or, or it was um, under the stewardship of the First Nations Health Authority and under the stewardship of the leaders of First Nations so that that information went to them first mm -hmm. and was controlled by them and used by them. And it was my job to make sure that, that we responded to that. And so that's one really important thing that I think uh, has made a difference in helping understand the impacts on First Nations communities in particular. Um, and then we did a similar linkage with Métis Nation BC so that we could understand the impact on Métis people in, in British Columbia. So it, it, it's a simple thing, but I think it is important that, that we put that forward as something that we needed to do and it was prioritized to do early on. Mm -hmm. and, and Danielle, you can, it has been, um, it's been um, a learning experience for me in every sense of the word. And as Danielle has taught me, uh, you know, reconciliation is messy. It's a, but it's the work that we need to do. And it's about um, building relationships. It's about talking through these things. And it's about building trust. And there have been many, many times where um, I've had to step back and check why I'm thinking a certain way or why I, I react a certain way to the way things happen and, and fall back on, on the wisdom that I have learned from, from others about 
that relationship and mm-hmm. not trying to fit other people's beliefs and understandings of learnings and wisdoms into my box of how I think about things. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bang Smith, did you want to jump in on that uh, as well? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and it's so nice to, to be a part of the conversation today. And I think Bonnie's absolutely right that we've discovered time and again over the course of the pandemic that reconciliation is hard work, it can be messy work, and it's work that we need to do um, every day. Um, and so, and and that we need to demonstrate, um, as Bonnie was just saying, building trust by demonstrating our trustworthiness. Um, so that's something that's been so critically important. And um, I, you know, I'm not sure that all people living in British Columbia really appreciate how privileged we are to have Dr. Henry in her role at this time, Um, not just from a pandemic perspective, because in so many ways, um, the way that I see it, her career sort of just was following a trajectory to have her in this role at the perfect time. So, you know, it wasn't my fault. I didn't bring it. (laughs) But um, just all of her professional experiences, you know, working on um, with the World Health Organization on pandemic preparedness and having been at the front line of SARS. And so knowing that she came to this role with this incredible wisdom and expertise around pandemics, which really has benefited all people living in British Columbia. But for those of us who are coming into this pandemic as Indigenous peoples, um, for myself having roots um, as an Echodene woman and a Métis woman, um, you know, having Dr. Henry in this role with her steadfast commitment to arresting racism and to illuminating and being open to illuminating the way that white supremacy as an inherited um, structure and framework really does continue to um, fuel and create and perpetuate those inequities. The fact that she's brave enough and courageous enough to take on that work every day um, has been, you know, something that I have so much admiration and respect for because it is really challenge or it can be very challenging work um, when you're pushing against um, structures and systems and policies, um, especially at a, you know, a time of crisis. Um, But we've been, I've been really lucky to work with somebody who I think really does um, live and breathe reconciliation, um, not as, um, you know, as an add on or something additional, um, but something that is core to, um, to the way that she approaches the work. Thank you. And and, and you mentioned uh, this work, it's hard work, it's messy work, uh, Danielle, and I want to acknowledge um, uh, you as well for uh, the great work that uh, that you do. Uh, my niece um, uh, is uh, becoming a doctor. Dr. Randy George is is my uh, is my niece, and she's from the um, UNBC uh, medical program. And it's people like you that uh, inspired her 
right? So I want to acknowledge uh, acknowledge you and uh, you know the dynamic team of uh, yourself and Dr. Henry. You know that ability for two eyed seeing, right? The ability to balance the Western and the traditional knowledge and to be nimble and adaptable. So I wanted to. Uh, you're, you're very kind, uh, Danielle, but I also wanted to pump up your tires a little bit as well, right? So great work and, and, and thank you for being a role model for so many young uh, Indigenous uh, uh, men and women. So thank you for that. Well, your niece is a powerhouse. She's an incredible, incredible human. And I'm really in awe of the work that she's doing. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and she's my uh, my wife and I's uh, goddaughter as well, and uh, uh, we have a great admiration and respect for the sacrifices that she's making, and you know the um, the unselfish contribution that all of you in the the medical uh, uh, the medical system have uh, for uh, for the rest of us. So thank you for that, um, Doctor uh, Bonnie Henry. You spoke a little bit to this, but I want to um, just pose a question to you, uh, Danielle. Uh, Indigenous peoples and cultures have had to endure uh, extreme impacts of pandemics as a direct result of colonization. Can you explain how the historical experiences Indigenous peoples have had with disease and connection to the current day realities, such as poor health outcomes, you know, the rural remote uh, communities, the overcrowded housing that we have, which is very um, difficult to, uh, to address, uh, particularly with the pandemic, and just lower overall socioeconomic statuses, right? So what? how do you bring that to the table in a way that is meaningful, that um, allows people to uh, to have that understanding and empathy that they need to you know, walk a mile in our moccasins, if you will? Yeah, that's such a great question, Dan. And, you know, I think one of the greatest joys that I've had in this role is collaborating with the First Nations Health Authority and their office of the chief medical officer. And before the pandemic, we had done some work on the population health and wellness agenda. And I would encourage your listeners to check it out. Um, there is a visualization or a, a drawing that's in that report that shows an ecosystem metaphor that really captures in one snapshot all of the things that we need as First Nations and I believe as Inuit, as Métis peoples, all the things we need to be healthy, vibrant, and self-determining. And so the image has um, a group of uh, First Nations family that's out on the land harvesting medicines. Um, it's a really beautiful image. And then under that soil from where all those plant medicines are growing, um, there's a lot of roots. And so when we think about what do we need to be well, those deepest roots, the things we ultimately need is the freedom to be ourselves. Mm fully as who we are, as Dene, as Métis, as Wet'suwet'en. Um, it's our culture, our language, our lands, our families, our communities, our nations. We need those deepest roots to be nourished and abundant. And we need the self-determination and jurisdiction um, to keep those things um, in abundance. And then in the shallower soil, so just above those deep roots, we need to have supportive mainstream systems that we can interact with in a good way and get our needs met. 
So that means we need education, justice, healthcare, child welfare. Um, we need those systems to be free of racism. We need them to be culturally safe. We need to see ourselves in those systems in order to get our needs met. And when both of those roots of wellness, those shallower kind of mainstream system roots, and then those deeper roots of who we are, our identity, our connection to our ancestors, when those things are well nourished, then we flourish in mind, body and spirit. And so that image was such a powerful anchor for me as we went into COVID-19, because all of a sudden it really illuminated the specific threats that this virus was uh, posing for us as Indigenous peoples. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we as Indigenous peoples were at greater risk of getting COVID in the first place. Because as a result of systemic and persistent racism and social exclusion, um, we have not gotten our needs met from housing systems, from the justice system. So we are in situations in disproportionate numbers where we're in overcrowded situations, living situations, where we might be overrepresented in um, jails and being incarcerated. So right out of the gates, we were at a higher risk of possibly getting COVID. And then when we think about that specific virus and the threat that it posed, we also realized that, um, you know, we were at higher risk of developing severe COVID or, you know, ending up in hospital or unfortunately dying of COVID. Again, because as a result of systemic racism and discrimination, um, we came into the pandemic with higher rates of chronic disease. Yeah. And then I think one of the greatest threats and the thing that, um, you know, that many of us carried as one of the biggest fears in our hearts was that this is a virus that is particularly hard on elderly people. That's where age is the biggest risk factor for death. Elders are the heartbeat of our community. They hold our language, our teachings, our ceremonies. There are knowledge keepers. And so this virus in particular was, um, you know, a real significant threat to our cultural continuity. And so going back to your question about, you know, thinking historically about pandemics, disease, um, our experiences in the healthcare system, you know, I really believe that we came out as a public health system, and I believe that the province came out um, to do the right thing and prioritize us and our families for vaccination, because these vaccines are good medicines that are the primary tool, the best way we have to protect ourselves from COVID-19. Um, and I also know that because of our lived experience and because we live in a country that is deeply rooted in ideologies of white supremacy that for, um, you know, decades and hundreds of years um, actively have tried to extinguish us as Indigenous peoples, we understandably have significant mistrust. You know, I have members of my own family who have not yet been vaccinated because they just said flat out, this doesn't seem right to me. The fact that they've put us first in line, you know, they're experimenting on us. 
um, as they did and have done in the past. So these beliefs, while I know that today it's not true because I have the privilege of being in this position and I get to be a part of those conversations and, and see how the decisions are being made, I know that this decision about vaccines has been made from a really good place, not about, um, about hurting us, but about actually upholding our Indigenous rights to have access to those good medicines mm-hmm. to protect us. I also know that um, there are people in our own community, as I say, in my own family, who are still um, so um, understandably mistrustful of the system as a whole that they they have concerns about the vaccines. Um, if I can maybe just finish on this with this one thought, because the way that I see it, I actually think that going out and getting these vaccines as an Indigenous person is the ultimate act of resistance because there's so much work to be done. And I really love your podcast and the fact that you're having these conversations to, you know, help all of us understand, like, there's so much work to do. And as Indigenous peoples, I think one of our most important roles and you know one of the things that guides me is thinking about um, my daughters and you know holding our systems our governments holding their feet to the fire and making sure that they are accountable and they uphold our treaty rights and you know it's very simple in order to do that important work of holding um, folks like Dr. Henry accountable, which she has done and she's shown up every day to do that. But we need to be here and be strong and healthy. We cannot let um, a now preventable illness, a preventable um, harms from a virus to keep us as indigenous peoples from doing that important work of continuing to demand that our rights be upheld. And so that's why for me, I actually twist that um, that fear and mistrust of the vaccines to say, actually, no, these are good medicines um, that we actually need to take because we need to be here um, to be a part of doing this important, important work. So I hope that if there's anybody listening today who hasn't yet gone to um, take their vaccine, that this might shift their way of thinking a little bit and um, help boost their confidence that these are really good medicines um, and that we should totally take advantage of our rights. Um, For me as a Treaty 8 descendant, that's my treaty right to be first in line um, to get those medicines. Um, I certainly was, my daughters were when their age cohort came up. So I hope other folks will also, um, uh, you know, make that choice, not just for us now and the future, but, you know, when I think about the pandemics in the past that decimated our communities, you know, that decimated communities that, um, that extinguished languages, like just that, the, the loss of those, uh, that's, the sacredness that was lost. Um, I actually think that going to get these vaccines, these medicines is another really important way for us to honor 
our ancestors and the ones that were lost in previous pandemics, sometimes deliberately, as we know, you know, infectious diseases were used as uh, a military warfare tactic. Um, sometimes it was just as a part of that, you know, global pandemic that was happening. But today, this is the first pandemic where I think we can stand up as Indigenous peoples and really um, embrace the fact that this is an opportunity for us to honor our ancestors, honor ourselves, our descendants um, by taking these good medicines. Masi. Masi, and I, I really appreciate, I, I haven't um, heard it being referenced or referred to as an act of resistance, but I really appreciate that, uh, Dr. Bain-Smith. And, uh, you know, getting vaccinated, we're, we're, we're not going anywhere as Indigenous people. Like, we've been here for millennia, we're going to be here uh, for uh, millennia into the future. And the systemic change that we that we need um, is required to make space, as you say, for our Indigenous ways of knowing, being, seeing, and doing. And um, I know that um, children and people flourish, particularly when they have a strong sense of identity and a strong sense of belonging. Right. So, again, I really, uh, I really appreciate uh, uh, the the comment about the act of resistance because I'm all about the resistance. Right. Um, recently, you know. Yeah. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I didn't mean to, to interrupt, just, to, you know, how important it is as a, as a sense of, you know, I, I know the image very well that, that Danielle was talking about, and it is, it, it's that sense of community, and it's, it's that sense of community that has um, kept people strong through this. But it also is that sense of community that means that I take my vaccine for me, but also for my elders and for my children and for the future of that community. And I hear that so much from Danielle, but from other um, First Nations and, and Métis people that I have conversations with. And that's so important. Yeah, it's a duty. It's an obligation uh, that, that I believe that I had as the grandfather in my family that I needed to provide that level of leadership. And, you know, certainly I had my, my, my reservations uh, about it. But I relied upon people who um, are trained in this area, and I, uh, I looked at all of the information, and I made the decision for for me that um, I should get vaccinated, and I encourage others to do the same. Um, and I and I work really hard um, not to get into debates about it because mm. it uh, can become very polarizing within our communities. Um, you know, um, I want to speak a little bit about climate change and. It was really interesting, uh, you know. You know, we've had the heat domes, we've had floods, we've had wildfires, we've had COVID nineteen, and I'm starting to see that uh, some doctors are starting to say some of the the results are uh, is it's due to climate change, right? And because of the the heat domes, the floods, and the wildfires, um, BC as a as a province, we're burning through money. And everything the province uh, continuously talks about is the economy, the economy, right? And healthy environments and community well-being hinge upon a functioning economy. So, so in your role, Dr. Henry, how do you balance the needs of the economy with patient well-being and public health? As a public health officer, is your duty to save every patient possible? Or does your role also include a duty to the economic well-being of British Columbia? Well, I, you know, this is a really, really important question. And, you know, you talk about all that we have been through in this province in the past year and a half. 
and I mean, who ever heard of heat domes and atmospheric rivers and the, the wildfires and then the pandemic? And it, it sometimes seems um, it, it seems like we're, we can't get a break, and it's uh, it can be very whelming for people. And I also, where where I come from, I'm a settler, but I, I grew up in, in uh, Mimac, ter Mimac territory in, in uh, Prince Edward Island. And, you know, we have this saying that common suffering builds strong bonds. Mm. And I hope that these bonds uh, are all of us together in this province. Um, because we have supported each other and where we have worked as communities, regardless of who we are and, and made that difference, it has got us through this. And when I think of, um, when I think of, you know, is it, is it health or is it the economy? And it's not one or the other, it's both. And if this pandemic has shown us anything, it's that the economy suffers if people aren't healthy and people can't be healthy. Um, the, the effects of, of uh, poverty, of unemployment, of not being in school um, also uh, affect our health, our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health. And we saw that especially dramatically um, when uh, children were out of school. Uh, we heard across the board in our survey that we did of people, um, no matter where they lived, no matter uh, what income they had, that children being out of school was um, catastrophic for families and communities. And no more, more so for indigenous communities, more so for um, uh, for racialized communities, more so for women than men, and more so for people who uh, are in lower income or live in poverty, because uh, not having children in school has so many detrimental effects on on parents being able to work on on their own education and health and mental health. So. Those were some of the things that um, that we prioritized, and I'm I, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we had children in school, back in school full time, starting in June of last year, and that has been something that we have prioritized. Not only because I mean it's good for kids to be in school and they need to learn, but it's it's because it's mental health and emotional health and physical health and economic health, and we know that. Um, interpersonal and, and interrelationship, interfamily violence um, happens more commonly when when parents are unemployed. It, it, all of these things go together. So it's not one or the other. And I think uh, what we are seeing around climate change tells us that as well. Our interactions, and here again, we go back to some of the models. And I think again of the, the image that we have with the, the, uh, um, the, the First Nations health report that we did where it is all intertwined. And I think um, to their credit, our government here has seen that it's not the pandemic or the economy. It's that we have to find the, that that tricky balance. And, and part of that was my job was, you know, how much is just enough restriction? And, you know, I had these conversations with ethicists about this uh, over many years, but, but at the beginning of this pandemic, and, you know, the ethical decision is to do just enough restriction. But when you're dealing with an unknown virus and all of the other unknowns and uncertainties at the beginning, where just enough is, is very, very difficult. And, and 
I know that people's direct health uh, is affected if we don't do a bit too much early on. But then we try to find that balance and we've uh, we've never shut everything down. And sometimes we've been asked to. Um, We've tried to find the way to keep people working as much as possible, but with safety measures in place, with additional things for this as we learned about what the things um, made a difference for this pandemic. So it is trying to walk that tightrope of, you know, the pure um, science, the the pure COVID, but the the societal consequences of the things that we do to try and manage the pandemic and finding a balance in those. And I think if anything, we have seen that, that, that whole the pandemic has exposed those inequities that have existed for a long time that uh, most of us in the Western world have not seen, you know, from my perspective. And again, it goes back to the white supremacy issue, uh, the, the framework that we built all of our legal systems on. And, and you know, the fact that uh, uh, the, the people working in our poultry plants were most at risk and they couldn't take time off because they had no sick leave. Um, that we had many people working in uh, multiple different long-term care facilities, uh, being paid, being undervalued and paid a, a, a wage difference of, of sometimes $14 an hour difference in their wages. Um, so these are all inequities that have been exposed. And, and we talked already about um, the inequities that have been longstanding um, in First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities as well. So it's not either or, it's it's dealing with both of them. And this is one of the things that um, I'm looking at. How do we, you know, how do we, we can't unsee what we see. And I use this a a lot. You know, Rachel Carson, who wrote a a really great book, Silent Spring, about environmental issues a, a number of years ago. She says, you know, most of us walk unseen through this world unaware alike of its beauties and the tragic intensity of the lives being lived around us. Mm. We've seen that now. um, And we've seen the impact of health on the economy and the economy on uh, the climate on, you know, it, it is not a surprise to me that people who died during the heat dome were people who lived in, um, in certain urban environments where there was less green space where there's less access to, uh, um, uh, to, to air conditioning. And it, it's not a surprise to us that there are communities that were uh, more differentially affected by the flooding. So these are all things that we need to, to pack in and think about as we're hopefully at some point um, really going into recovery, recovery from the pandemic, recovery from uh, the tragedies that have hit us. Um, and not not forget those bonds that we have and that we've seen this. Um, so I, I don't know all the answers, but I think uh, if we continue to to realize that that these are all uh, connected circles, um, it's what's going to help us take those perspectives out of this. Mm-hmm. And and just on that point, uh, you know, we've heard about the the, the phrases "build back better," you know, and. You know, and I think part of uh, part of any kind of change is the unknown, the uncertainty, which begins to give people anxiety, right? Oh yes. You know, and we've heard again uh, this new normal. You know, what what's realistic for us to look forward to achieving in in, in the near future? You know, like again, all of our lives have been uh, so disrupted. 
when will we get back to some sense of normalcy, do you think, uh, doctor? You know, I, I think we have to define what normal is again. Um, I, we can't un, unlive this either, right? And it has affected all of us and globally. And, you know, another analogy that I use all the time is we're in a, a, a storm globally, the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And so we have to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these concepts of building back better or new normal, I, I really think we don't want to go back to what we thought was normal. Um, and this is an opportunity where we've been so disrupted to say, you know, what should it look like? Um, and I, I think, you know, I'm not an economist, obviously, but um, when you think about the impacts that the economy and, but we can see that this is, that there are some changes that have been positive. In this. So how do we find those positive changes and build on those? Um, things like um, the recognition that sick leave is important. Mm-hmm. That's a, a small one. Um, recognition that uh, wage differentials in some of these critical areas are, are uh, mean that people are more disadvantaged when something like this happens. Um, so how do we take those and create a, a normal that that builds on the bonds that we have? So it, it, it's a, I can think of my head is spinning a little bit because I can think of many, many different ways. And of course, my focus is health, health and public health. And, you know, how does we build a public health system that is more resilient, that is able to deal with, and I talk about how we're, we're one deep in public health and because when you're working on prevention and when we're doing our job really well behind the scenes, you know, people aren't getting sick. So there's no need for us to have two or three people doing a certain thing, but, but, I see us, these are not going to stop. And it's the same people that are responding to, you know, the, the flooding of the drinking water systems. And what are you going to do with your uh, the food in your fridge because the power's been out because of the, the storms or that you've been evacuated because of the wildfires? And how do you deal with the smoke and are doing the contact tracing for the the, the COVID outbreaks and managing outbreaks and providing vaccines? So I think, um, you know, we have... Um, we have to look at our, it's a time to be disruptive and to build it back together uh, in a way that is is more just. Yeah, and you've been very, um, very adept and nimble in terms of, uh, you know, your communication with um, British Columbians and many of us, and I'm sure yourselves as well, we're all getting some kind of COVID fatigue and like, what now, what now, right? And, you know, we continually uh, encourage people to get double vaccinated. We encourage them to get their booster shots. Uh, we have another variant that's out right now. Why should we be concerned about the variant? And, and um, you know, people are saying, well, just, well, there'll probably be two more variants before Christmas, right? You know? Probably not before Christmas, but <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um, but, you know, viruses do that. That's, uh, that's how they uh, exist in this world. They replicate. And every time they change, they have a teeny bit of uh, genetic material relative to humans. Um, so every time it, it changes, and it's an, what we call an RNA. So it's a single strand of, D, of uh, genetic material. And, you know, we have DNA, which is a double strand of genetic material. So when you only have that single strand, it doesn't have a spell check. 
So it changes all the time. Um, these mutations arise, and it's only when it's spreading a lot between a lot of people, and there's you know hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of this virus replicating in a, in people uh, or in animals um, that you start to to probabilistically get a mutation that gives it some sort of survival advantage, and that's what we've seen all along. So the answer really is. Um, global vaccine equity. And once we get a level of immunity in everybody around the globe, the potential for one of these really um, different strains that gives it some sort of survival advantage to, to take off goes down dramatically. And that's when we start to get back into uh, the post-pandemic, endemic, living with this virus phase. So um, as much as I, I said it, and it's it's exactly a year, uh, I think December 15th was uh, our first vaccine clinic. And uh, how many times have I said get vaccinated? It's in the thousands. It's almost as many times as I said wash your hands and you know, wear a mask. But, um, it, you know, we are going to get to that point where we live with this. Um, it does mean that I believe that at some point soon in the, the coming months, uh, the booster dose is making a huge difference, especially for our seniors and elders who um, whose immune systems aren't as strong and don't mount a strong immune response. And and I was just looking at the data before we had our call today, and it's it, we're starting to see in 70 and over dramatic decreases, which is just warms my heart. <laughs> um, but, you know, we also, uh, so we need to learn how to live with it like we do many other things, which means there'll be certain times of the year, there's a seasonality to this virus. Certain times of the year, we'll have to be more careful about washing our hands and covering our mouth and staying away from others when we're sick and wearing masks in those indoor settings, opening windows, making sure we have that ventilation and and protecting those people who are most at risk. Dr. Danielle Bain-Smith was very kind in her comments about you earlier, uh, Dr. Henry, when she says you've shown up every day. And uh, I want to submit that, uh, Dr. Bain-Smith, you've shown up every day uh, as well. And uh, what are you do? What, what are you two doing to take care of yourselves? Like you're in such a high pressure situation. And I, I do a bunch of work in the public and one of the things that I, I really struggle with is that if I'm in a room with 100 people and 99 people say I did a good job and one person starts to criticize me, all I remember is the one person who criticized me, right? So how are you ladies going through your days maintaining this optimism, this, this, this calm, cool, collected approach? What are you doing to take care of yourselves and, to, you know, you, you continue to show up to serve in the face of uh, such uh, tremendous uh, challenges. Um, you don't see us behind the scenes. You don't see me going, ah! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I agree. I was going to say, I, I think it is important to dispel the myth that we are keeping it together consistently <laughs> over the last two years because um, we're human too. I, I'm not convinced that Bonnie's fully human. I think she may have some uh, advantageous genetic material. Um, but I mean, I've had many low points over the course of the pandemic. It has strained me 
um, as it has everybody else. And so um, uh, some days I'll peek at Bonnie's calendar and that helps me feel better when I want to feel sorry for myself. And I think, oh, no. Um, it could be worse. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, you know, the medicines that keep our, you know, that we hold and have the benefit of coming from our elders. So I think about balance. I, you know, try and stay grounded on really hard days. I'll pull on my grandma's mutt clucks that she gifted me when I graduated from medical school if I need an extra boost of strength. Um, and uh, just trying to focus on the here and now and the things that um, I can control. And in some moments, it's just um, it's just the breathing. And I would say, you know, that some of the hardest points for me have been when we've been like tackling some of the reconciliation pieces head on. And, um, you know, we worked really, really hard with a coalition coalition of nations with um, President uh, Sayers from Nuchonleth Tribal Council, Chief Slett from Heltzik and uh, Jay Nelson representing Chilcotin um, to negotiate an information sharing agreement. And that was tough work and um and it was really hard to kind of create space to uphold first nation self-determination and um at the end you know nobody was particularly satisfied with the final agreement other than it was signed but you know there's just there's so much work to do and and that was a particularly hard time because you know it just brought into question you know uh, my my role and my impact in the role and and am I you know doing enough and so those were hard moments where um, you know I remember distinctly one night kind of like being in tears and then I had this real epiphany where I thought oh my gosh because I was praying you know to the creator um, and uh, and then it struck me I said oh my gosh like I asked to do this work, like I wanted to work in service of reconciliation, but um, sometimes it's just hard and it gets you a little bit down, but um, yeah, balance, prayer, and, uh, and then being able to work alongside somebody who really does, um, you know, work so hard to keep her own balance too. So those have been good medicines for me over the last couple of years. And I, I cannot say enough how much I appreciate the wisdom and the, and the support from Danielle and the support we give each other. Um, and I owe her um, a decade worth of lattes that she, she and her daughters bring me when, when in need. But it, it has been hard. It's been very hard mentally and emotionally. And uh, I, I know somebody was saying to me, uh, we were talking about it and Maybe it was you and I, Danielle, I can't remember. But I've I've cried pretty much every day for two years um, because it, it is, and it's one of the ways that I let things go. And, um, you know, um, but it is, it is so important. And I've learned how important it is that language matters and words matter and how we say them is, and it is my lot in life, as it were, right now to, to be that face of a, the face and the voice of a, a a very strong team of people, and I want to do um, to honor that and do justice to it. So that's what keeps me going. Um, but um, 
you know, I, I am an introvert. And if it wasn't for my job, I think I would be quite happy during this pandemic, <laughs> hiding out at home and you know, reading books and listening to music. But um, but it has been hard. And, and there's been some personal challenges, uh, you know, Danielle and I both, but um, particularly me, because I've been the face and the voice and I've received death threats and some very nasty things and um, I'm now a threesome I don't go anywhere without my RCMP uh, protective detail which is uh, which is you know comforting but also very limiting in one's life and and challenging and um, so we we have a strong team um, and that makes all the difference and um, trying to stay grounded and trying to remember that we we have a really important role to support ourselves so that we can support um, our community too. You ladies are superhuman. And, um, you know, we are um, so privileged here in the province of British Columbia to have uh, both of you uh, leading the charge uh, per se on behalf of of all of us uh, with regards to the the pandemic. Lots of pressures on the healthcare uh, system that you've noted. Um, people uh, are burnt out within the profession. You know, many of them might be contemplating leaving uh, the profession. What do you say to people to keep them encouraged and motivated? And particularly to some of those young men and women out there that should be pursuing a career in the medical profession. Um, what light can you shed on them about why it would be important to, uh, to serve uh, in that capacity? Want to start, Danielle? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, I I just think there's so many people that have been working so hard um, in service over the last two years. And I know we've talked about the healthcare professionals, but this is the first time that I've gotten to um, even bear witness a little bit more closely to First Nations leadership in action. And um, so I'm just thinking of that um, a kind of that broader question of, um, you know, just calling people to be of service to those around you. And I think there's so many different ways. I I went into medicine because I really did want to be a part of supporting Indigenous health and wellness. Um, and that was over 20 years ago now. And um, knowing what I know now, I think there's so many other ways that we can support um, Indigenous health and wellness. It doesn't necessarily have to be down a healthcare professional path. Um, And I say that because I've watched our leaders um, step up time and again to support um, us and our families and our kin. And it's been hard work for them as well, Um, not just facing COVID, but all of the other um, challenges, overdose, and as we've mentioned, the wildfires. So I think what I would say to somebody who's just starting out on their journey is, um, finding that sense of purpose can get you through really hard times and challenges that you might think feel insurmountable from where you are now, because I'm speaking from experience and knowing that, again, on those low days, just remembering that the reason I get up in the morning is so that um, people like 
my family, um, my loved ones, and people like them. So my relatives and kin from other nations, that when they, um, you know, go to walk in the doors of a hospital, whether they go in to walk in the doors of a clinic, or they're going to get their vaccine, that I wake up every morning hoping that my work will help in some way to make that a positive experience. Um, and so just being grounded in that, um, that desire to be of service has really helped me get through some really tough times. So um, yeah, so I hope if there are some, some listeners who are uh, listening and are in that point in, in their life of trying to figure out what comes next, I would say definitely there is such a deep sense of um, uh, satisfaction and able being able to do this this sacred work. So hopefully they'll um, they'll decide to to pick something that that really benefits and gives back to to their communities because that's really what we're all about, right? Is taking care of one another. I, I worry. I I do worry, as you mentioned, Dan, about. Um, uh, about people in healthcare professions. Um, I've had the privilege of, of visiting a number of our ICUs and um, hospitals around the province when things were really stretched. And, and that's where I think there's a lot of, of you know, I visit my, my public health teams too, our public health teams, and we talk regularly, but I see the distress and the moral distress in, um, in the intensive care units when young people are coming in and needing to be on oxygen or ventilators and they're unvaccinated. And that's part of the issues that we're seeing more recently. You know, early on, it was all very unknown and, and fear and fear about us and are we going to take it home to our family? But now it's it's a preventable illness and the moral distress that people are feeling about the not being able to to support other people who need who have other health care needs. And really what I try and talk to people about is is supporting each other, being gentle with each other. And the fact that, um, as you talked about, Daniela, that that our role as in service, which is, you know, Medicine is a service industry, and we are privileged. We call it hospital privileges for a reason. We are privileged to care for people. And how we do that makes a difference in people's lives every single day. And so just reminding people that um, the way you approach it is so important, and it will give you strength, and it will make it, uh, you know, make it an, an experience that is helpful and positive for the people you're caring for, too. And, and I just see that over and over again, the heroism of, uh, that is out there, even when we're tired, even when there's uh, negativity and frustration. And I'm like you, I mean, every negative thing sits with me all night. And um, But I think uh, we come to it from a place of wanting to, to support people, wanting to care for people, wanting to, to recognize that we are all in this together. And and I talk about, you know, this unrelenting uncertainty and it's hard. You know, we don't we want it to wish it away. We don't want it to be that way right now, um, but it is. And so we have to take that energy by doing to do the things that protect ourselves, protect our families, protect our community and and replace that uncertainty with unrelenting kindness. And that is that is my mantra for getting us through this. I'm uh, blessed. 
to have this opportunity to spend uh, this uh, short while uh, with each of you. Uh, I raise my hands again in respect and admiration for all that you do. On behalf of my fellow British Columbians, I want to thank you for your servant leadership. And in this space of reconciliation, you are seeking transformative change um, in terms of how health is being provided uh, to, uh, to all of us here. And you want to smash the status quo. The status quo oftentimes is uh, poverty uh, normalized in far too many Indigenous and non-Indigenous homes. So smashing the status quo means striving towards greater equity, greater equality, and greater inclusion. I'm uh, just so, so thankful that you've taken time to be with us here uh, uh, today. It's uh, taken a little while, right, for us to get our schedules together, but uh, you were here today and uh, you were uh, on TV yesterday. You'll be on TV today, you'll be on TV tomorrow. And um, I'm just grateful that uh, we have women like you um, leading us here in the province of British Columbia. Masicho for, uh, for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Masicho, Dan, thank you. In Canada, the process of reconciliation is largely, but not exclusively, tied to the federal government's relationship with Indigenous peoples. The term reconciliation has come to describe attempts made by individuals and institutions to raise awareness about colonization and its ongoing effects on Indigenous peoples. Reconciliation also refers to efforts made to address the harms caused by various policies and programs of colonization, such as residential schools and the Indian Act. For some, the word reconciliation represents an opportunity to reflect on the past, to heal, and to make right. For others, however, current gestures of reconciliation are merely performative and lack meaningful action to address the harms done by colonization. While the word reconciliation continues to mean different things to different people and remains controversial amongst Indigenous people for the lack of accompanying action, reasons for optimism remain. Individual and institutional efforts can lead to meaningful dialogue and efforts to improve the relationship between Indigenous people in Canada and to continue to right historic wrongs in a manner that brings Indigenous people respect for their full rights and appropriate accompanying treatment. Thank you, Drs. Henry and Dr. Bain-Smith, for your many years of service coupled with your stellar leadership skills. We know that there are many pressing demands in your schedule, so we very much appreciate you taking the time to be with us on the program. Please join me in future episodes of Reconciliation Road, where I will introduce exciting change agents who are pushing the dial on reconciliation. Until then, stay safe and keep standing in the light. Masi Cho. Thank you. Reconciliation Road is supported by the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. The FNMPC is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing free of charge resources to First Nations in Canada, supporting their efforts to gain equity ownership stakes in major projects being developed on their traditional territories, while ensuring that the integrity of the land is maintained for the enjoyment of current and future generations. The FNMPC envisions a future where we walk the path of the Reconciliation Road together. For more information, please visit us at fnmpc.ca.